The Guardian. Now, each of us in our own countries, I believe, must be unambiguous and hard-nosed about this defence of our liberty. There are practical things that we can do as well. That includes making sure that immigrants speak the language of their new home and ensuring that people are educated in the elements of a common culture and curriculum. David Cameron speaking about his vision for multiculturalism. The Prime Minister says a grasp of the English language is an essential part of the integration process. New rules obliging migrants to have a relatively good standard of English came into force last year. That stance is currently being challenged in the courts. And in this week's Guardian Focus podcast, we ask, is it right to force people to learn English? Is it divisive? Or is language the one thing that holds a multi-ethnic nation together? We'll also look at cuts announced to state-run English as second languages courses. Half of those places are at risk. How does this fit in with David Cameron's vision of a common language in a united kingdom? I'm at Westminster Council House and this is a very special day for 21 people. They're about to become British citizens. Most of them will have taken classes to get to this stage learning about the culture and English language. I wonder if they think speaking English is important. Congratulations, you're a British citizen. Thank you very much. How long have you been here? Uh, over seven years and a half. Part of the course that got you here was learning the English language. That's right, yes. How important was that? I truly believe that it's um, essential to participate within the community and also to um, uh, be able to, to, to fulfil my, my duties at work. The government here are very keen to say, if you're going to be part of our community, you must learn English. Do you think that's a good thing that they're doing that? I think so, yes. If, if, if we want to become a British citizen, um, I think we need to embrace uh, the culture, uh, the values and obviously the language. You're from Iran. How important was it that you were able to learn English? It's very important for communication and for everything. We need language first. We said, if you want to go to any countries, first language and history you have to know. And it was not hard, but I got some. Would you, would, even if you hadn't, they hadn't told you you had to learn English, would you have wanted to learn yes, English? Yes, we need language. Any country we enter in, we have to know the languages first. Councillor Bradley, you just uh, supervised the, the making of 15 new British citizens. Yes. Um, they've all been through English classes. How important uh, an element is that to w- what they do? I think it's extremely important. If people are going to fulfil properly and feel part of, of Britain, I think it's very, very important that they're able to speak English. English is a great unifier and, a great, and, 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 and something that brings people together. And I think there will be at a great disadvantage in the society if they, are, if they aren't able to speak English. We very much encourage them to do so. And, of course, they have to take the oath today in English. Uh, that's very important. Of course, we can't do more than persuade them, but there are moves to, to nudge people into speaking English. Is that something you support? I think it would be. I mean, I think the experience in the United States is very good. But the United States has always 
be very important for people who are coming American citizens that they can speak English and I think that manifests itself in the, in the fact that they, they then feel a much greater part of the community in which they live. So a happy day for many, many people. Most came in as hopefuls. They left as British citizens. They came from countries like New Zealand, from Mexico, from the Congo. Unfortunately for one lady, while they were rehearsing, it became clear that her English wasn't good enough and she wasn't allowed through the process. She was led away in tears. This is Green Street, the Asian Bond Street of the East. At the heart of Green Street is the local library. It's well used by people of all nationalities. But here too, the move is to prioritise the use of English. I'm inside now and I'm with Councillor Ummesh Desai of New Council. You've got a responsibility for community cohesion, haven't you? That's correct. And we're standing in front of the newspaper stand and I can see lots of things here. There's uh, what you would expect, I suppose. There's an Express and there's a Guardian and there's the Times and the Telegraph. There's the Mature Times, the, <laughs> the local newspaper, the new and recorders Which? there. But there are certain papers that used to be there that aren't now. What are they? It is true that we've taken some newspapers away. Which, which ones? Which, like Gujarat Samachar, Punjab Times, what we would call uh, Asian community newspapers uh, in vernacular languages, in Asian languages. Those have been removed. Why have you done that? Well, firstly, what uh, the contents of those papers, one can access them th through the internet. And we are actually increasing our library provision, which includes access to, uh, in, uh, to the internet. But we want to promote English as a language that brings all communities together, all people together. And we believe that we need to set an example to people uh, as to the need to promote, uh, to use English on a day-to-day -day basis as much as possible. Now, let us be clear. We're not saying people need to speak the Queen's English, but there could be a certain level of understanding, a level of communication that brings communities together. Newspapers play a very important part in that day-to-day -day communication. That is how people get to know what goes on in the world around them, get to know what goes on in, in the borough. And uh, it's getting people, encouraging people to start reading those newspapers that gives them a sense, much more of a sense of Englishness, Britishness, so to speak. So you can't force them, but you're nudging them. You could say that. We are encouraging them. That is part of our, our, our job, part of our duty as civic leaders. We have been elected. We've got a clear mandate uh, to, to govern this borough in a responsible manner. We've been very clear about what our community cohesion stance is, which is respecting diversity and different cultures. And hence, you can see there are uh, books in Urdu, books in Punjabi, books in Gujarati, although we are reviewing uh, our stocks and, and making sure that uh, we meet the demands and needs of our users. We also have a duty as civic leaders to say, look, English is what brings us together. It is the common denominator linking our communities. Language is one of the most important way of bring, uh, ways of bringing people together. And can I also say, make one other point to you, as one or two critics might have implied. This is not a cost-cutting measure. These newspapers don't cost much to buy. I mean, uh, a Gujarati language newspaper is about 30, 35 pounds a year. A, people, even in their own benefits, can afford that. Uh, but, but B, for us, there's a very, very, very tiny amount in our budget. That's Newham in East London. But another place under the spotlight, as far as language is concerned, is Bradford. There's criticism that despite living here for a generation, many in the city don't speak English, making it harder to integrate with their non-Asian neighbours. We sent our Northern editor Martin Wainwright to Bradford to see if people see the inability to speak English as an issue. 
I'm at the Moogle Gardens in Manningham Park in Bradford. You can hear the fountain, fountains, I should say, playing here. Um, it's a garden laid out in this park in Indian style, South Asian style, and it's one of many ways in which Bradford uh, has pushed the boat out to welcome uh, the cosmopolitan character of, of the city, the large South Asian community here, and before that, other immigrant communities going way back to Jews, Germans who came to help run the textile trade. There are a lot of rose petals uh, scattered in the pool. There's obviously been a ceremony of some kind taking place here. So it is appreciated that um, whether people feel the need to learn English as a condition of living here is another matter. I've just stopped a gentleman who's out walking in the lovely sunshine by the duck pond. The best way of learning English is uh, with classes because uh, people from, especially wherever they came from, if there's lots of them, they mingle with their own people. Of course. And uh, they associate with them, their own people. And uh, they're speaking their own languages. And, you know, if, if you've got that sort of uh, environment, then learning English is very, very difficult. So the best way of learning is, you know, attending classes. And do you find, or your friends, have you found that classes are available? It's relatively easy to find classes? Uh, absolutely. I, I think they are available and uh, they're very helpful, in, especially in the Bradford Council, uh, if somebody is willing to learn. Um, and They just need to find out where to go. Yeah. And there are so many, uh, you know, uh, community centres that they can go and get information from. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's pretty easy. Anecdotally, you hear that with the South Asian population, it's quite often the women who, are, who find it harder to learn English because they get out less. Is that, is that true? Absolutely. Uh, that is very, very true. And uh, they only, uh, you know, um, uh, with their own family and getting to know, and they don't work. Similar thing is happening in, uh, with the Eastern Bloc country people that are coming over, is that um, they are working together, you know, and most of them are labourers, you know, yes. doing uh, labouring work. So, um, and some of them become a contractors as well, you know, so they're speaking, all speaking the same language. Yes, so there so isn't the incentive for them to learn. Yes, there, there isn't, yeah. Right, well, I've just, uh, I've just ambushed a group of three um, young ladies. This question of, you know, should somebody who wants to move um, to the UK, wherever it's from, should, they, should it be a requirement that they learn English? Personally, my own opinion is I don't think it should be a requirement, but once they come here, then they will realise it's a requirement. You, you, you can't really get by without it. You can't really, no, you can't. But So obviously if they get told about the lifestyle here and what's required of them, then it's up, there, up to them personally if they want to learn it. But when it comes to requirement, then you actually think, that, oh my God, I have to learn the language before I go into the country. It should be, it should be optional for them. Mm. If they want to learn it, fair enough. If they don't, it's up to them. It, it's easy to say you should learn English, but I mean, I don't know if you were born as yeah, an English speaker, you all were, you're all Brad, born Bradfordian. Mm. I guess it's not that easy. I mean, have you have you discussed it with friends who've come from uh, well, our parents? Yeah. yeah. Our I parents mean, how they, did they find learning English? They didn't need to. They worked in the mills. My father used to work at Dewsbury and go from Bradford to Dewsbury Walk. And so, so all his friends were, were speaking they, Urdu or yeah, they were speaking Punjabi and Urdu. So they, he didn't need it, but he's picked it up over the time. And has he found it hard? I mean, I, I don't. I think I'd find Urdu or Punjabi hard. So. Yeah. I mean, I think sometimes it finds it hard, mm. yeah. Mm. do find it hard because they weren't educated from back home. Yeah. But my mother speaks English fine and she was a housewife at home. Ah. So there's a difference. When my father was out, but because she was raising the children, taking us to schools and doctor's appointments, she speaks brilliant English. My personal view is, because I've got married from Pakistan, yeah. my husband didn't speak English at all. Really? At the moment he doesn't? Well, at, at that time he understands it now, but it still doesn't. But um, now it's a requirement when you get married that you must speak English before you come. And yeah. I'm... 
I'm against that, that they should learn English before they come. Because if they're not educated, they should not come to this country because there's no oh, jobs. No, no. so you, you feel, that, you agree that yeah. really, in, in their own best interest, yeah. they should learn As a pensioner, say if I'm calling my grandma over to visit me, I don't expect her to go to her classes to learn English. It depends on what, in an individual. No, of course, of course. Yeah. Mm. So I think um, if you're coming as a husband or a wife, English is compulsory. If, if you don't know it, then stay there. I would still go with the optional. The reason why our generation husbands never spoke the language is because when our parents came, it wasn't a requirement for them. So they just told them, it's okay, anywhere you work, everybody speaks the same language as you do. But nowadays it's like, I'm sorry, if you don't speak the language, you won't get a job here. So for the people that come in now should think, well, the generation that's gone before us, our suffering, you need to know the language. Very interesting talking to those three there because they're all Bradford-born, they're all native English speakers. Uh, but they do also still speak Urdu and Punjabi. Um, as, as one of them said, they have to, because otherwise they wouldn't be able to talk fluently with their parents. And I think what also is really very interesting is the way that they were making comments about more recent waves of immigration from Eastern Europe of the sort, and, and a very good-natured sort in their sense. It isn't always so good-natured. The sort of comments that would be made about people coming from Pakistan, India, 20 or 30 years ago. And so the cycle repeats itself. And joining me in the studio is Alan Travis, the Guardian's Home Affairs Editor, Fazil Kawani, the Director of Integration at the Refugee Council, and on the line, the Conservative MP for Lancaster and Fleetwood, Eric Olwenshaw. Hello, everyone. Um, back in November, the Coalition introduced a new rule requiring people to be able to speak English if they want to move here from abroad with their spouses. This is currently being challenged in the courts by Rashida Chapti from Leicester, She's been told her husband of 37 years can't join her because his English isn't good enough. Fazil, is that fair? Well, English language is very important for our clients because they're refugees. They're coming here under very difficult circumstances. And when they come here, they want to rebuild their lives and they want to make a positive contribution. Now, this particular rule is not applied to refugees because they're coming here under difficult and different circumstances. However, I think the rights of family <coughs> life is important. To be able to, uh, to, be able to uh, reunite it with your family is extremely important in line with the Human Rights Act. So that should be respected. But that particular rule does not apply to refugees. Eric Olrenshaw, the general principle, is that a good one, that if you want to come here and you want to make a life here, that you really ought <coughs> to uh, speak the language? And if you can't or don't seem to want to, then maybe you shouldn't come. Well, I agree with that totally. I mean, it's, it's a liberty thing, isn't it? I mean, if somebody comes to this country and wants to be part of this country, they've got to exercise, you know, the democratic rights of this country. How can you exercise those rights if you can't speak? And I would say, add to that, write English. So I'm all in favour of these tests, and I'm, I'm pleased that we're actually going to extend and, and look into the level of tests that exist at the moment and actually raise the bar. But, of course, there are so many things that the government does now and seeks to rely on persuasion here. Um, they're, they're using legislation. Do you think that it should be that, uh, that harsh? Well, it's not harsh, is it? I mean, it was the previous government, the Labour government, brought this measure in. And, and what we're actually looking at is, is the performance of that measure. I mean, when you look at the figures, I think it's something like in 2010... Um, 40,000-plus came in as either spouses or partners with about 8,000 dependents. Now, on that level, you would expect them 
to be able to speak English, as I said, if you're going to access the freedoms that we all acknowledge as part and parcel of being part of this country. So what is the problem in, in having to ask them to learn the language of, of the people they'll be mixing with and working with? Alan Travis, this is a test case. Um, so are, are there many people being caught by this um, uh, regulation? Oh, I think there'll be a significant number, yes, without doubt. Um, the first thing to say about it was it was this is actually a bipartisan policy. This rule was first introduced, uh, proposed by Labour, and its introduction was accelerated by the coalition government. Um, the current situation before the rule came in was that most uh, people came as spouses, had to, uh, did indeed learn English, and had to learn English in order to get citizenship and passport within 24 months. <coughs> of arriving, and very few have failed that test. So there's obviously a willingness to learn English amongst those who come to join uh, and participate in life. I think the difference here is between whether... Uh, I think everyone agrees that people should, if they're able to, learn English. And I don't think there's any disagreement without, about that. And obviously there's a, a, a problem of uh, seeing as separate parallel lives of uh, people who come maybe through... Particularly this is aimed at those who are arranged marriages, who live in their own communities, work in their own communities, and speak in uh, almost a, a separate existence from what is regarded as a mainstream British life. And it's obviously aimed at trying to break down that barrier. The question then is whether or not it should be compulsory. The operation of it is uh, has some rather dubious practices in that it only applies to non-English speaking areas therefore if you marry uh, a Spanish speaking only woman from California she won't have to go through a compulsory test but it's someone coming from India, Pakistan uh, who may have a perfect degree in uh, English from uh, Delhi University would have to take a compulsory test so it's got differential impact to it. What's the thinking behind that? Well, I think it's partly to do with uh, where provision of English language courses can possibly be made through the British Council and uh, where the bulk of the problem is. The top four uh, nationalities of people coming to marry here from abroad are Pakistan, India, Bangladesh, and then surprisingly the United States. Well, let's say English as a second language is a key issue here. because uh, there were, I think, a couple of years ago, 250,000 people taking out free English as second language uh, courses. Um, that number's fallen dramatically and looks uh, set to fall even further because there are new restrictions coming in. Eric Olerenshaw, <coughs> if the shared language is the key to a successful multiculturalism, how does it make sense to cut funding for these courses? It makes sense because, you know, if, if companies are wanting to bring in um, foreign workers to work, then companies should <coughs> be expected pay for those foreign workers to learn English. That seems clear to me. I don't see why the, the taxpayer should be providing a hidden subsidy to companies. Um, and if you look at the provision across the board, remember this, there's the schooling that goes on, there's English as a second language is, is dealt with in schools for youngsters of families. There's a lot of voluntary sector work going on. At the moment, this cuts across so many different departments. And what we have said is we want to look at the provision right across the board, because we don't actually feel we get an an efficient provision from the existing providers. What we need is a lot more of the informal stuff and a lot more communities, settled communities, doing things for themselves. Alan Travis, does that make sense or should we expect the government to pay for more ESOL? Well, we've gone through a big expansion of ESOL since the early 2000s. Um, uh, and what's going on now is we're seeing a bit of a rationing of the free places that are on offer. I don't think it's unreasonable completely for companies to uh, benef- who get some of the benefits of migration in terms of employment <coughs> to foot some of the bill for those English language courses as well. But are companies a big proportion of those that, that, that do benefit from ESOL? Uh, well, if, in terms of participation, yes, I think so, yes. And I think there is a, I don't think that's an unreasonable expectation. But obviously there is also the basic level of provision, which isn't happening. 
across other, other European countries, there may be a more uh, assumption and provision of services whereby it's assumed that new migrants, when they arrive, will go through some kind of orientation and <coughs> language courses, which has never happened here in Britain. It's always been piecemeal and patchwork. And the problem is that there, that basic level is, it doesn't, uh, isn't yet there. And so when uh, you start restricting what has been an expanded flow of free ESOL courses, uh, the, choices, the cho- choices start getting invidious and some people start getting left out. Um, Fazil Eric spoke there about communities taking responsibility for this and we hear a lot about the big society. Um, Is this something that the big society can take on, teaching people to speak English? Well, the problem with the big society, if you don't have funding for supporting grassroots communities and voluntary organizations, then we're not going to have a big society. But that's the point. Because that's where the big society... society. Isn't that the point of the big society, that you don't get the funding? Exactly. And... They expect volunteers to do everything. I think there is high expectations of people doing things on a voluntary basis. And also, I think most of the politicians have not seen the impact of the budget cuts. We are going to see it in the next 12 months, both in terms of impact on voluntary sector organizations, but also impact on the communities as well. And I think cutting budget, cutting ESOL funding is one of the other impacts on the vulnerable people in, the, in our society. But come on, Eric, do you see people in your constituency that will take up the slack? No, I don't think... I mean, you know, let me give an example, right, of communities. I know, for example, the Catholic Church has a, has, has a support system for new immigrants who are Catholic in which it provides um, English as a second language classes. There's, there's other provision I know in certain mosques that go on. There's provision out there, and, and all we're looking at at the moment is the people who are actually in work what we're saying is, you know, if you're on job seekers allowance, if you're on employment support allowance, yes, we'll fund you because you're looking for work. If you're in work, we'll fund 50% of it, unless you've been brought here by a company specifically, <coughs> and that's their responsibility, not the taxpayer. I think, I mean, you know, ESO at that level provided free by the taxpayer, which is something like 271 million. And there's still other sections, you know, we accept the problem that we've got for the last 13 years of this massive. Uh, migration we've had, and we're going to have to pay for that, in the fact that, you know, some children being born in homes where English is still the second language. And so there's a fund still for that, which hasn't been cut, which is called informal adult learning. That's another 210 million. And what we're trying to look is to rationalise and look at this provision across all different departments and see whether it's being effective or not. But if it's something that you really want to happen and you think it's really important, shouldn't government do it to make sure it does happen? Well, I think the lesson of the last 13 years is the government can spend, 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 but it doesn't always get the results it wants from that spend. As I said, my key thing, you've got to have commitments within the community. There are lots of community examples across this country where that's the driver, and particularly parents, you know, if you take the refugee sector, thousands of refugees driving their children quite rightly and supporting their children to extra classes in school provided by the DfE. What we're trying to do is to harness that community involvement as well as state involvement and, yes, the private sector involvement to get a more rational and actually an efficient provision of a high standard of English. So, Alan, where are we with the politics on this? Is there any difference between the parties in terms of that um, desire to have more English spoken and the strategy for achieving that? Well, I think there's... um 
a lack of fundamental consensus here in that uh, what might be called an integration strategy as opposed to a, an immigration strategy. And that word integration has uh, a lot of different meanings to a lot of people. Some some people think it means assimilation and back off it. Others who may be critics of multiculturalism, we heard earlier of David Cameron's speech in Munich, uh, regard it as maybe as an alternative <coughs> to multiculturalism, whilst the third school, which I've personally described to, would see it as a, probably an essential prerequisite for a multicultural society, which, uh, in a sense, some people see the unwillingness of new migrants, they see an unwillingness of new migrants to uh, participate in British civic society and mainstream life, but which they, the migrants, may see as instead as being a sort of barriers to their participation, which we've been talking about, whether it's English language provision or other forms of community. The big society may be one way forward here in, the, in terms of uh, being able for my ethnic minority communities and new migrants to participate in big society. They actually, uh, those barriers of participation may be overcome. But uh, un- we haven't got an integration s- uh, strategy. We're waiting to hear from one from the government. We're having more and more requirements on compulsory English. We've had Eric earlier talk about uh, writing English as well as speaking it. It'll be coming in shortly. Uh, and so uh, we need some more consensus about what an integration strategy actually means. Fazil, isn't that the problem, the lack of an integration strategy? That's a problem. Um, That's really a problem. But also, it's it's quite important that the role of of voluntary and communities are recognised in terms of contribution to the integration strategy. That shouldn't be just a government strategy. That should be a national strategy where other people are participating and contributing to it as well. Eric, we heard earlier from people in Bradford explaining how their parents weren't encouraged to learn English when they first came over because everyone else at the mills would be speaking Urdu too. How damaging was that to those communities and how do we stop it happening in the future? I think they're right. You know, I mean, we, we are picking up, I said, the backlog of failures over this policy. I mean, I was in, in, state, in, in teaching for 27 years. I can remember, you know, first refugees coming in, and, and the multiculturalism referred to, which was then being developed as kind of state-driven multiculturalism, was that you, ha- you had to put the children in every single class and you weren't allowed to take them out for, for specific English because that might uh, somehow be treating them unequally to anybody else. And I would say, you know, what is much more, what's fundamental to any integrated strategy, yes, is, is to get people to speak and understand. And yes, right the language of the country they will be operating in so they can access the rights of every other free English person. And I think what we're trying to do here, I mean, you're picking on, on a minor part of the ESOL in terms of business. I, said, I told you, the key thing to me is education, the next and present generations going through schools. We've got a problem of a backlog because we didn't have controls on who was coming into this country. Hopefully we'll deal with that with the new immigration policies and the tests. To deal with that backlog, we've got to harness the strengths of the communities and the religious and the faith communities in being able to jointly with government and with local government who've got new powers in these areas to be able to tackle this backlog of a problem we've got. Because, of course, you've got real insight into that uh, aspect of it because you were a teacher um, yourself. How disruptive or how difficult was it uh, in dealing with uh, classes that had a large number of, of pupils in them that maybe didn't speak English as, uh, as well as they needed to, to, to benefit? I wouldn't say it was disruptive. You know, provided you've got a school operation, and hopefully I was a fair enough teacher, you can deal with it. My point I was trying to make with, we used to have refugee children coming in. I can remember the first smallest uh, coming in. And, and not speaking a word of English, and you'd say to the education authorities, 
well, shouldn't they first have a series of classes in basic English before they just come straight into the school and end up going to history, geography and science classes? Because actually we did use teach proper history then, by the way. Um, and no, there was not, it was considered wrong. It was considered the other way. You know, there were so many experiments. Instead of actually giving them a proper grounding in English and then bringing them into the school life, for them themselves, of course, it held them back. They were always a year or two behind everybody else. And again, because of the pure education system we've got, that you always move up automatically by, by age, that impinged on it as well. So, you know, we lost, I would say, part of a whole generation of, of kids because the system simply wasn't prepared to accept the reality that real integration means understanding the language of the country you're in before Faz- you do anything else. Fazil, is that right? And if so, how that- serious was the, pr- the failure at the school level? No, that, that's correct. And that's why in London we have so many supplementary education classes taking place on Saturdays Absolutely. and in the evenings. So I agree with that point. I think that's quite important. It's very important that the mainstream education is not disrupted. And that's why I keep coming back to the role of communities and voluntary organizations who are adding value to what the government's doing. But the point I'm trying to make is beyond now, there won't be funding for all these groups to be able to help the most vulnerable people in our society. That's the issue I'm, I'm really, we're very concerned about. Okay, finally, Alan, Travis, um, this is all part, isn't it, of that continuing debate about rights versus obligations. Um, where do you see that going? Well, I think in this case, uh, obviously in the chapter case, for example, the European Convention on Human Rights is going to be sort of blamed for the, But the, the right to bring somebody uh, to, to marry, to spouse and so on, that goes back and is enshrined in, even to the 1971 uh, Conservative Immigration Act, and that's always been there and been part of the bipartisan consensus. Um, uh, if you start trying to uh, 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 tear that apart, then I, th- I think that could be in trouble. But I mean, I think the, obviously there is going to be uh, a tighter and tighter and stronger uh, English language requirements and other perhaps demands on uh, integration or, or requirements to uh, demonstrate uh, a willingness to uh, participate in English life, or British life, uh, in a way we hadn't seen before. And at the same time, we need to provide the funds and means to do that. Uh, Labour did have a migration impact fund, but unfortunately Gordon Brown, when he was a Chancellor, refused to fund it himself and so a £10 levy was upon every visa of every new migrant but the, the sum total that was produced was so paltry as to make little difference. We need to do something more about, about, about uh, putting the money where, where the need goes in this respect. Okay, thank you all, but we really are out of time. Um, Just enough of it to remind everyone that we're asking for some feedback on our podcasts. If you wouldn't mind filling out a short survey about what we do, please email focuspodcast at gmail.com. That's focuspodcast at gmail.com. But that really is it. Thanks to Fazil Kawani, Eric Olerenshaw, who broke into his holiday, for which we're truly grateful, our own Alan Travis, and our Northern Editor Martin Wainwright. I'm Hugh Muir. The producer was Peter Sale. We're going to take a three-week break, but we'll be back in September. Until then, thanks for listening, and goodbye. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.